Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are continuing a sermon series we've been in, uh, in the book of Nehemiah. We've called this series, The Gospel According to Nehemiah, because we're studying this book, not just in and of its, uh, for itself, but in how it points us uh, to the gospel, how it points us to Jesus's uh, reconciling and rebuilding work in our life. And so, uh, you may remember, if you were with us last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 9, John Sidema, a uh, guest preacher, came and Uh, walked us through that rich chapter, that chapter that is essentially a whole chapter of recounting the history of Israel, their sin and God's faithfulness, right? It has that refrain to it that we were stiff-necked, we were sinful, we wandered away, but God forgave us. He showered his mercy on us. And so it's this incredible chapter of repentance and restoration, repentance and mercy, Israel learns the lesson, and the lesson is recounted in that story that they cannot outsin God's mercy. Right? They can't run away from it, they can't run outside of it. That where sin increases, as Paul would tell us at the end of Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. They could not outsin the mercy of God, and we cannot outsin the mercy of God. Right? Because our acceptance before God, his love for us, isn't about us. It's not about our goodness or our badness. It's about his mercy, and it's about Jesus. So that is Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 10 deals with another question. It's, you know, we mentioned Romans 5, where sin, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, Paul begins Romans 6 immediately after that. Well, so then should we continue to sin so that grace could abound? And he answers, by no means. Right? It's a a question that God's people from Israel through to the present day have wrestled with. Right? If if the more I sin, the more God forgives. If I can't out-sin God's mercy, then why bother trying? Right? If God is going to be there for me and love me no matter what, well, sin's pretty fun. So why don't I just keep going in that sin? And yet Paul says, by no means, right? Because the good news, friends, is not just that we are forgiven, right? It would be good enough news if God's mercy covered over our sin. But he further says, but I don't leave you stuck in your sin, right? I don't leave you there stuck in the same addictions, in the same patterns, in the same bondage. I have made you and I have redeemed you for something more than continuing to live in the midst of guilt and shame and sin and suffering and addiction. So if Nehemiah 9 is Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded, Nehemiah 10 is the cry of a people who say, shall we then continue in sin? By no means. And so after uh, their their chapter-long prayer of repentance, they sign their names on the covenant. They sign their names reaffirming 
Having reaffirmed God's commitment to them, they now reaffirm their commitment to God. And so the first uh, half of chapter 10 is the list of names of people who signed. Friends, we have had enough sermons uh, in this series that consisted of long lists of names. And so I will, uh, I got an amen from Willie who preached on one. Um, So I will leave it to to your own perusal to read those names and familiarize yourself with them. Um, And our our reading today is going to start in Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 28. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is Nehemiah 10, 28 through 39. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of our Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. Nehemiah chapter 10 uh, is the action of a people who have learned both in their own lives and in the long story of their people that if they go along with the ways of the world, if they accommodate themselves entirely to the ways of life of their neighbors, Uh, that they will lose their souls. That if they continue to drift along and adopt the practices of all the other peoples around them, that eventually they will find themselves uh, in a difficult and hard place. 
These are the commitments uh, of a people who are learning that unless they learn how to say no to some things that are worth resisting in their life, and unless they build habits of resisting those outside forces, that their life with God itself uh, is at risk. Now, I am a child of the 1980s, which means that one uh, small phrase was drilled into my life uh, at school from before I can remember, which was, just say no. Right? You remember the Just Say No to Drugs campaign started in the Reagan era? Um, and that was good advice <laughs> because they, what, what that whole program was about was teaching children that there are things in your life that you need to learn to say no to. Right, In spite of all of the good things in life that we want you to say yes to, then none of those things will matter unless you learn the discipline of saying no to things that might inhibit your life. Now, of course, that uh, campaign was narrowly targeted at drugs in particular. But we can look at all of our lives and say, you know what? Drugs, as destructive as they are, are not the only destructive force in this world. Right? In some ways, uh, those are the ones that seem obvious, right? Those are uh, drug use is against the law. So the state helps us with consequences to recognize that this is something that is bad. Uh, for you and your health. But there's other things in our world that are as powerful and as corrosive to the soul as drugs are to our bodies and to our souls. And yet there will never be a campaign, probably, in our, in our school systems that say, just say no to greed and materialism. That say, just say no uh, to lust in the belief that that human bodies are there for your consumption and your pleasure. Just say no to overwork and workaholism in your life. Right? There are corrosive influences in our world that have the power to erode our life with God unless we, like Israel before us, learn these habits of resistance, these habits of putting boundaries in our lives to say no. No, I'm not going to be about that or to pursue that. Have you learned yet uh, that if you just float along with the currents of our world, you will not wake up one day magically and find yourself to be a more loving, gentle, humble, and whole person, right? Those of you who are involved in raising children, you've probably learned this, right? If you plop your children down in the front of the TV and then send them off to school to let them figure out from their friends what matters in life, they're not going to show up one day magically and be selfless, servant-hearted, forgiving, loving children, right? That they'll be formed into another image. And the same is true of our hearts and of our souls uh, as believers. Now, we have to be careful here, because far too often, uh, the Christian church has been known more for what it says no to than what it says yes to. Right? Far too often, the Christian church has been known for a type of judgmentalism, A type of life that says, you know what, Christianity is primarily about those things that you avoid doing. I remember learning the rhyme, I don't don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. And uh, and that's what makes me a a Christian. You like that one. Uh, And so as Christians, the powers of resistance, the habits of resisting 
counterformation into the spirit of this age are not about identifying ourselves by what we're against. It's not about setting ourselves apart or judging other people. It's about, as as Israel lays out for us here, it's about the well-being of our own souls for the sake of the world. Leslie Newbegin uh, is one of my uh, favorite thinkers in in the history of the church. He was an Englishman, uh, English Presbyterian, who became an Indian bishop. Uh, And so as he's a bishop uh, uh, over the churches of India, this is what he wrote. He said, therefore, the question that has has to be asked about the church And every local congregation is not how big is it, how fast is it growing, how rich is it, what difference is it, uh, but what is it, this is the question, what difference is it making to that bit of the world in which it is placed? Is it actually functioning as a first fruit sign and instrument of God's new creation for that bit of the world? And it is in this context that we have to understand the separation of the church from the world. It's separated not in order to abandon the world to destruction, but in order to lead the world to salvation. It is not the separation of a man who abandons his fellows in order to make his own escape, but the separation of the man who goes ahead of his fellows in order to show them the way to freedom. What Newbegin's pointing out, what Israel is pointing out, is that we have to learn to say no to some things in the world in order to live out the life of Christ within us for the sake of the world so that we can model to the world another way of being and doing life marked by love and not by lust, marked by generosity and not by greed, marked by forgiveness and not by vengeance, marked by humility in place of pride and self-righteousness. The way that Jesus put this is he said that he placed us in the world to be salt and light. And salt has to retain its saltiness. It has to remain distinguishable and salty in the world. We see that here in this passage. Uh, it starts out in verse 31, the people, or in verse 28, the people identify themselves as those who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Remember, God's missionary plan in the Old Testament was that God's people Israel would be situated right in the middle of the life of the ancient Near Eastern world and that they would be known by their covenant God, that they would be known by the way that they lived life and worshiped, the way they gave their time and their resources to the honor of God and to the good of their neighbors. And so the separateness that's talked about here when it says those who've separated themselves out from their neighbors is those who are dedicating themselves to be God's beloved, to be God's special people as a light to the nations. The first bit of what they commit themselves to has to do with that separation. He says, uh, he starts with this resolution not to give their wives, their sons, or their daughters uh, into marriage with the people around them. Right? There's a commitment here to not intermarrying with their neighbors. Now we need to say something about this. Uh, right, this is this can be this can hit us the wrong way at first, given our own nation's history of prejudice and judgment around interracial marriage, right around mixed marriages. But what God is after with His people has nothing to do with race or ethnicity, right? This isn't about Israelite people not intermarrying with Hittite people or Philistine people because they didn't want to mingle the races, right? That is a, a later sinful, terrible Western addition. 
in Western interpretation of some of these passages. This is about worship, not ethnicity. Right? This is about the fact that Israel's neighbors worshipped after other gods. And that every time in their history, when they began to intermarry with their neighbors, it led on a slow but inevitable process of them abandoning the worship of their gods in favor of other gods. Right? We know that this isn't about ethnicity or culture because we have stories in the Bible where Israelites marry with foreign women and it's approved of by God. Think about the book of Ruth that we spent some time preaching in last year. Right? That, she was a Moabitess, a woman from Moab, who converted to the worship of Israel's God and then married into Israel's family. And this is actually becomes a part of the lineage of King David and then eventually the Messiah Jesus. And so the Old Testament looks favorably on Israel drawing their neighbors into their family as they draw them into the worship of their God. But they want to warn them against marrying outside of their religion, of their faith. Not only that, but we know from the commentaries that one of the things that motivated Israel to marry outside of Israel was the offer of social advancement. That they would marry with a prominent family in another nation or another village, maybe even marry the priests of other religions in an effort to improve their lot. It was a a sign of ambition, right? Look, I made good. I married a, a, a noble Philistine. Yeah, they worship Baal, but look at our house. It's great. Uh, I got a lot of land. Yes, I have to worship other deities, but look at my new estate. And so the people are here saying, no, no, we are going to maintain our boundaries. We are going to maintain our life with God, even if it means cutting off some of our, our possibilities of social improvement, even if it means limiting our relational world a bit, because we recognize that we are always in danger of forgetting our God. And so set apart, marked out, Uh, to be who they are with God. They then uh, talk to us uh, in these verses about three particular areas of life that they are learning to resist. Places where they are building up habits and committing to habits of saying no to the corrosive influences around them. The first is in their commitment to the Sabbath, uh, which is a way of resisting restlessness. It's a way of saying no to the restlessness of our world. Right? Our world, uh, both then and now, uh, always doesn't know how to live with a balance of work and rest. Right? We are always being pulled into over-identifying ourselves with our work on the one hand, and so working and never turning it off, never, never turning off our cell phone, checking out of email, and truly letting ourselves rest and say, I'm not going to work. I'm giving this time for something other than productivity, right? We're in danger of doing that on the one hand and kind of over-identifying with our work. Or on the other hand, under-identifying or not being willing to work, right? In a fallen world, work is always hard, right? That was the curse that was placed at the fall, right? Adam was told that though he's going to farm the land, he's going to work it, but instead of giving crops back, it's going to give back thorns, right? Instead of him getting to eat his food, sometimes... Uh, sometimes bugs are going to come in or birds are going to come in and eat his food. And so sometimes we feel the difficulty of this work and we just want to say, you know what? No, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to check out. I'm going to stay at home today. I'm going to just surf the internet. I'm going to play video games. I'm going to do something else instead of work. Right? We always live in this balance of trying to identify, well, how much am I to be working? How much am I not going to be working? 
And I think for most of us, there is this pressure to over-identify ourselves with our labors. You know, think about it. You're at a cocktail party or you're, you're out hanging out with friends. You meet some new people. The first question they ask you very often, what do you do? What do you do? And we all know the feeling of either shame where you have to say, well, actually, I, right now I'm between jobs or, well, actually, right now I'm doing this job, but that's not really what I want to do. Right? So we know the shame that can come around being asked about your employment when it's something that you don't identify well with. We also know that the, some of us know the puffed up pride that can come when it comes, hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm going to tell you what I do. <laughs> I'm a fighter pilot. I don't know, whatever, whatever the job is that you really think is great. Um, we know what it is to overfind our worth in our jobs. And so God gave his people a gift, which is the gift of Sabbath. It's the gift of inviting his people to rest and to worship. It's to say you are not made simply to be productive and simply to work. God didn't create you because he needed work done on earth, right? There were ancient deities that that was essentially the belief that they had, that the gods created human beings because they had jobs that needed doing, right? So God didn't create you just so you could wear yourself out with work. Right? In fact, we're told that's one of the reasons God redeems his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Is that when they were slaves in Egypt, they worked ceaselessly without rest, without a break. And God redeemed them. He rescued them so that they could rest. So that they could enter in to Sabbath. Think about one of the expressions uh, that we use often in our world. Time is money. Have you ever heard that expression, time is money? And in some ways, it's true, right? We, all of us have a value on our time. If you're either, either your job makes $10 an hour or your job makes $45 an hour or your job makes $300 an hour, your time becomes your money, right? But if you think about it as, as a theological statement, time is money, reduces humanity to a machine that converts time into money, right? And your worth is on how much money you can make out of your time. And the scriptures open up a different world to us. It says time is not money, right? Time isn't just something to be commodified. Time belongs to God, right? Your days are in the hands of God. God has given you the gift of time. And it's not made just to be converted into money. The days of your life are made for God's glory, right? The bottom line isn't your income, it's the glory of God. In some of those days, you glorify God by going to work, right? Some of those days, you glorify God when you get in your truck and you go to the job site or you, or you go to your office, right? Some of, the, some of your days, you glorify God by going about your work. And on some of those days, you glorify your God by stopping working, by resting, by going not to the office, but to gather with God's people and to worship him. God gives his people the gift of Sabbath to teach them to say no to restless, ceaseless work. And because God's people were smart and crafty, they had long ago come up with a loophole to the Sabbath. And the loophole was this. Well, we know we're not supposed to do business on the Sabbath, but our neighbors are allowed to, right? So if I let my neighbors come in, if the people can come in from other villages and set up their shops, open their restaurants, cut our lawns, do all those kind of things on the Sabbath, 
we can still have a pretty productive Sabbath. And yet God is here and his people are here saying, no, no, we're not going to allow our neighbors to come in and deal on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath isn't just about them, it's about their neighbors. It was always not just about Israel learning to rest, but them extending that rest to their neighbors. Friends, I think we need to learn uh, how to receive the gift of the Sabbath. How to treat the Sabbath uh, not simply as a day off. right? To treat the Sabbath not simply as a day to do what we want, a day to catch up on work that we get behind it, but a day to enter in to the rest and worship that God has made us for. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. Churches often get, where, where churches can get weird is when we get overly prescriptive uh, on what the details of Sabbath, observant, Sabbath observance look like. Right? That's where you end up with weird things like, we, you know, like the Pharisees had in Jesus' day. Well, you can do this much work, but not this much. You can walk this far, but not that far. You can do these things if really necessary, but not these things. And so I don't know what it looks like for you and your family or your roommates. But it's worth having a conversation to say, what can I do to make sure that Sunday, the day that belongs to the Lord, is nourishing to my soul, is life-giving in my relationships, and is restorative, that, it, that, I, that I receive something on that day that empowers me to enter into the other six days with new purpose and new depth. And friends, we will never learn how to rest on one day until we've learned how to enter the rest that Jesus offers us. Right, if you believe, uh, fundamentally the belief that I am what I do is about me trying to prove myself. It's about me thinking that my productivity, what I gain, the promotions that I attain to, my use of my time is what defines me and what makes me valuable. Right, some of us even, ha even have a faith that says that you're defined by the work that you do. Right, you're defined by how much you serve at church, how often you're there, what you're doing. And yet Jesus invites us to rest. He invites us to enter into a life with him where he has done the most important work on our behalf, where we can receive that gift and know that we're not defined by what we do, either for him or for our boss or for anyone else. Christianity is a faith that has rest at its center. When, we, when new members take, our, take their vows to join our church, when you took your vows to join this church, if you remember, uh, you were asked, do you receive and rest? upon Jesus alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. A part of faith is resting. A part of faith is trusting in God's work and not our own work. I love the contrast here. Uh, Buddha, the founder of, of Buddhism, his last words uh, recorded in his writings were strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words in the gospel, it is finished. Right? The work has been done. It's complete. Enter my rest. Learn from me how to rest. So they embraced the Sabbath, a saying no to the restlessness of the world. Then they embraced generosity, uh, which is a way of saying no to greed. If you look at really all of verse 32 through to the end of the chapter is about their plans for generosity. It's them saying, we're going to give a third, of the a third of a shekel to the work of the temple. We're going to give this much of our crops. We're going to give this much of this, this much of that. And we're going to give it to the temple to support the worship and work of the temple and the maintenance of the community. Right? Giving is a way of resisting greed and hoarding. Right? They weren't giving a third of a shekel. Notice what they give. They're, they're asked to give a third of a shekel 
right, which is a, a portion of their income. That's not a way of saying, I'm going to give a third of a shekel to God, and then the rest of the shekel belongs to me. Right? It's a way of saying all of this belongs to God. Right? They give their first fruits. We're told that they dedicate their firstborn child. That doesn't mean that they like, sacrifice the child or send it away. It just means that they take the child to the temple and say, this child belongs to you because our family belongs to you. It's not, God, this one's yours and the other kids, I don't know about them. Right? They don't just take a portion of their, their crops and say, the, you know what, this part we're relying on God for, but the rest is ours. No, they offer a portion to God as a way of saying all of it belongs to God. Right? Just in the same way, they offer a Sabbath one day to say actually all of our days belong to you. They offer one bit of the crop, one bit of their income, one bit of their family to God as a way of saying everything we have, everything we own isn't ours, but it belongs to God. We're not owners of it, we're stewards of it. If you look through this passage, they will have said in some way committed themselves to saying that our time, our land, our people, our crops, and our animals all belong to God. That's basically everything. That's all of the nouns, right? People, places, and things. All of it belongs to God. It is not ours. In this actually, uh, cultivating this habit of generosity, is a way of saying, I will not be defined by what I possess, right? Neither my income or no, nor what I can buy with it is going to define me, right? This may be the most pressing idolatry of living life in late modern America, right? It has never been easier to identify with the superficial possessions of life than it is today, right? What, you go on whatever, whatever your social media engagement is. You go on Facebook and see pictures of perfect-looking families, that have perfect-looking homes. You go on Instagram and see pictures of perfect-looking meals that you, um, you know, just can't wait to eat, or perfectly dressed uh, families that look to have it all together. Right? Everything you don't have is always in front of you. And then a click away is Amazon or whatever your internet shopping choice of the day is that says not only is everything you want but don't have always in front of you, but it, it, what you can have is only a click away. Right? We are pressed into this, this cycle that's soul-crushing of believing everything we need to be full, happy, and content is outside of us. But it's so close. If we just spend money that we may or may not have, uh, it's right there for us. And yet God wants Israel to learn uh, that it's him who provides for them and that in him they have all the possessions they need. He teaches them this uh, from their very first days as his people when he leads them out, out of Egypt into the wilderness and he literally feeds them with manna from heaven, right? Bread rains on them. And manna was a lesson in and of itself because if they stored up more than they needed, what happened to it? It rotted and went bad. So they were allowed to take what they needed for the day, but if they hoarded, if they saved, it, it fell to rot. Right, they were literally given an object lesson for give us this day our daily bread. Right, give us what we need. Don't give us too much. Don't give us too little. God, we're trusting you to feed us and to sustain us. Friends, adopting patterns of generosity uh, is a way of resisting that, the soul-crushing cycle of greed. J.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite authors, wrote this. 
If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. And I've always loved that quote, uh, that there's things in this life that matter more than money. But we will live as though money's all that matters unless we start to loosen our grip over it little by little. Right? That's why when we take the offering in church, we say, we don't want you to feel any guilt or compulsion around this. If you're new to church, we know that churches can make you feel weird about giving. But we give as an act of worship, and we give as an act of discipleship. That if you, if you loose your white-knuckled grip on your money, even if it's just a little bit of your money at first, it becomes easier over time to hold it more loosely. Right, The act of putting a quarter or a dollar or $10 or $100 or whatever it is into the offering basket, though it seems small, is an act of resistance in a greedy and materialist world. And it's a lifeline to you from God who calls you to a life of generous giving, giving to his service, giving to those who have need. The story of the rich young ruler uh, in the Gospel of Luke tells us. Remember that story where the man who we're told had much. Jesus, he, he comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? Jesus says, keep the law. He says, I've done everything. And he says, take your possessions, sell them, give to the poor, and come after me. And the rich young ruler, we're told, walked away sad. Right, that's a cautionary tale that if we don't learn to resist greed, the day will come where we're powerless to resist greed and we can no longer let go. So they adopt the rhythm of Sabbath, the rhythm of generosity and giving. And then finally, they adopt this habit of grace in order to resist and say no uh, to self-righteousness. Look at what they're giving for. If you look at verse 33. He says their gift is going to go to uh, the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. The reason for all this generosity, the reason for the giving they're being asked to do is to maintain one simple thing, the sacrifices at the temple. Right? All of this is so that God's grace and mercy remains at the center of their life so that the atonement sacrifices can be made so that the priests can continue when they become overwhelmed by their sin to go to God and to make atonement for that sin, right? It was a constant pressure in Israel, especially after the exile, to say all of this giving to the temple is too much, right? We're a small people. We're coming back to our city. We're trying to rebuild our homes, Surely we can make better use of our money than giving it to the priests and buying sacrifices. And yet here's this commitment to say, no, no. Because our sin never runs out, because we continue to fall short and break our promises, right? Even these great promises that start off with so much joy to keep the Sabbath and to give generously, we know we're going to break them, right? Our best commitments we're going to fall short of. We're going to be back again at Nehemiah 9 where we're stiff-necked and wandering. And that's why at the center of our life together, we need the mercy and grace and goodness of God. Friends, you will never say no to the powers in this world that have the, that have the power to crush you. You'll never say no to your addictions. You'll never say no to your desires that lead you astray until you know that God has already said yes to you 
by the depth of his mercy in a way that you can never lose. One of my favorite sermons that anyone has ever preached, I didn't get to hear him in person because he lived in the 1700s, but a man named Thomas Chalmers, an Englishman, preached, actually, sorry, sorry to my English friends, he was a Scotsman. Um, He preached a sermon with the title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. What does that mean? He's saying this. He says, your heart is made to be governed by what it loves, by your affections. The things that you you want and you need and you crave, you will pursue in your heart. It's the way you're made. And you won't start saying no to the things that you know you need to say no to until your heart is gripped by a deeper desire. Right, we, right, the tragic story of just say no is that it doesn't work. Right, because in the moment where temptation comes, in the moment where a friend invites you, you're not thinking with your head. You're not thinking, well, what did my third grade teacher say? Or what did that dare cop that came and visited us, what did he say? No, you're thinking, what do I want? What feels like I have to have it? Right, and so we say yes when we know we ought to say no because our hearts are gripped by a desire. And so what Chalmers was after is saying, you will never say no to your addictions, to your sins, until your heart is gripped by a deeper affection. Until you know that Jesus has set his affections on you, until you've come to see his grace and treasure his mercy, to know that his love for you is a love that all of the offerings of this world are only a shadow of. Until you know to the core of your being that the life that he offers is deeper and better and purer and richer than the life that this world has out for you. Our work of saying no will just be legalism. It'll be stone-faced attempts at self-denial and ultimately we'll get self-righteous and then finally we'll fall flat when we can't do it. And we'll be crushed under the weight of our guilt and under the weight of the law. Only Jesus in his grace Only his yes to you, in spite of your sin, in spite of your guilt, has the power to shape us, to free us, so that we can be a people uh, who say no and who resist where necessary. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that your gospel, the good news of your grace and your mercy and your goodness, would so grip our hearts that all lesser loves are seen for what they really are. Lord, we pray that you would make us new by your grace. Lord, that we would be a kind of people who aren't shaped by the pressures and patterns of this world. But Lord, who do shine the light of the kingdom, the dawn of a coming new creation in our world. Lord, where we are hooked, where we are addicted to things that we can't even see. Lord, I pray that you would make our addictions plain to us. Help us to walk away, not under the power of our will or self-renunciation, but into the glorious offer of life that you've held out for us on the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.